Welcome to Flatbush in Maine, a podcast from Brooklyn Historical Society. Where we make history the Brooklyn way. Each month, Flatbush in Maine digs into Brooklyn's quirky, surprising, diverse history, linking it to the most salient issues shaping our world today. And we give a glimpse into how we make and preserve history every day here at Brooklyn Historical Society, a 154-year-old museum, archives, and urban history center. We are your hosts, Julie Golia, Director of Public History at Brooklyn Historical Society, and Zahir Ali, Oral Historian at Brooklyn Historical Society. Meet us at the intersection of Brooklyn's past and present. On Flatbush in Maine, we like to say we make history the Brooklyn way. And here at Brooklyn Historical Society, we often like to say that we're not just telling history, we're doing history and empowering our visitors to be historians themselves. But what exactly does that mean? In this episode, we're going to talk about how we practice doing history on an everyday level and why that's so essential to public history institutions like ours. We are trying to make sense of the sale of a person. It's our responsibility in the museum setting to push people directly to notice that among the tablespoons and the cooking utensils, there is a list of people and then you move on again to another bale of flour. My priority was to to give face and to give depth to the experiences of countless African-American women who struggled in slavery and died enslaved. Mm -hmm. For young people, they've lived very full lives, but just for 15, 16, 17 years. So when we look at the past, we're looking for experiences that can resonate with them. So on one of our school programs here at the museum, um, students are learning about civil rights and sports, and they listen to uh, oral history that we have with Mary Day Socher's Sobers. When I got on the line, and he said, take the walk, it's set, I was gone. When I look, I had another mark up my And he said, oh, shorty, he said that. You got another mark, but you won. He put me right there in first place. But he was taking too long at the table. And I figured that he must have been a little nervous. I waited for my medal. So he finally came over, and he had them all closed in a box. When I opened it, it was a silver medal. And I was like this. Look, you know, I couldn't move because I saw it, and I knew I was first. And everybody there knew I was first. We're joined today by BHS Director of Education, Emily Potter and Jai. Emily has been an educator here at BHS for over eight years. Through hands-on teaching experience, program and curriculum development, and mentorship, she's had a hand in shaping BHS's educational focus on bringing students into the process of doing history to better understand power and equity, self, and community. Emily, we've heard you talk eloquently over the years about BHS's approach to teaching history to young people here. So tell us why it matters and how you differentiate between the idea of telling history versus doing history. Our challenge, but maybe it's the opposite, is that a lot of kids come in thinking history is boring or irrelevant, right? So they may have um, encountered history through textbooks, through movies, um, and to them it's a, something that they need to just like acquire a big bucket of background knowledge about, and they may sort of end their career there, just kind of reading and digesting and absorbing. At some point, when those of us who get into history, we get to actually do history work, which is engaging with primary sources, making an argument, thinking about, well, did that really happen that way? Getting to contradict somebody who's already written something down, which is really satisfying at all ages. I'm interested by this idea of how students come to history, you know, what some of the misconceptions people have uh, about what history is. And, and it's largely uh, a history to be consumed, Right. But in truth, and, and certainly the way that we talk about history and the way we do history here from a much more creative perspective, right, mm -hmm. where the the student is engaged in the process of actually creating or writing or documenting the histories that other people can consume. Can you talk a little bit about how an example where that is done here? Yeah. And that's a really important point, because I think sort of at 
at best, students might have un, have come to understand history as this really interesting and multifaceted na- um, narrative that includes visions of them, you know, um, that in, that includes a diversity of voices and experiences, but it still is done. And so why should they care? Like, where did where do they get into it? And it also still doesn't quite do that thing of getting to say, but what if I disagree with that? You know, um, at its worst, history is, could be very exclusionary. It could be marching kids forward to say, you know, America has always been getting better and better. America is a place with these perfect democratic ideals that play out in all ways. And if you don't feel that today, it's because you're not looking at it right. That's a way in which a lot of kids might be coming to history with kind of a narrative problem where they have seen themselves excluded from mm-hmm. the narrative. Then there's this other side of it, which you brought up, which is about how to get young people involved in caring about writing history and making history and interpreting history. And so we do that in a couple of our programs here. The Teen Council convenes every spring um, with a group of high schoolers from all over the city, mostly from Brooklyn, and they are tasked with helping Brooklyn Historical Society interpret the lives of five Brooklynites. So last year, they convened in the wake of the women's marches, and they decided to focus solely on women. So their project involved looking at how not just telling the stories of five women, but also considering them as a group, as the teen council, how do these all tie together, Mm -hmm. right? So women is a pretty broad category. But they were really inspired by all of the women. I think they surprised themselves at how they could look back on some women who, you know, were kind of very pre-millennial in terms of their, their, when they lived, but the students chose to name their exhibit Wise Eyes Still Woke because they felt like those women still had something to be teaching um, young people or activists today. I think that's really fascinating that, that they use woke Right, mm-hmm. um, which is of course a, a very contemporary, uh, hyper contemporary, hyper contemporary like within the past couple yeah, years to, to talk yeah. about like political awareness, and that they were also some inspired by the women's march. What I really like about that is how it illustrates that the histories that we produce are so s- determined by our contemporary context. Mm-hmm. Right, it almost seems like that. Um, you know, to embody BHS's mission, which is connecting the past and the present, it's there's, it seems there's no more important group than young people to right. do that for, right? right. Because mm-hmm. it seems that your core, one of your core goals is to demonstrate relevance um, to mm-hmm. students' lives, right? To see, so that they can actually see themselves in the historical record or their story or their experiences in the historical record. That's right. I think it also what it does and what what we all have to learn from younger historians um, like these teens is that that idea of a kind of really neutral history is a lie. And let's just put that to the side. Obviously, there's a rigor to really examining your sources in the context they were made and all of that. But they were just so clear on the fact that they were they are human beings who are influenced by their time as teens. Then they're going to use their if that lens is inescapable to them as historians and as interpreters. And I just love that. Like, Grownups try to pretend that we're above that sometimes. It's actually, I never thought about that this way, but it's, it's brilliant, right? It's like, it actually shows an incredibly nuanced understanding of what history is, that the quest for objectivity is ultimately <laughs> futile, right. and that actually the ultimate responsibility of a historian is to be quite honest yeah. about the perspective yeah. that they're coming from. And that's such an interesting and nuanced thing for a set of high school students to actually See, they're think just, about. They're all really smart, and we all have something to learn from our students. It seems like if the if one of the core goals is to demonstrate the relevance of history to their life, then um, like social history practice really has to be at the the center of what you do. Would you say that's accurate? Yeah, I think for young people, they've lived very full lives just for 15, 16, 17 years. So when we look at the past, we're looking for experiences that can resonate with them, right? So we're not going to look at a president who's in his 60s, and I say his, because we're in America, for most of it, it's going to be a white guy. That is not an accessible experience for a 16-year-old growing up in Brooklyn 
to get to. I mean, it's not that they might not be interested in leadership and power. We can get there too, but we're going to get it to it through other ways. So on one of our school programs here at the museum, um, students are learning about civil rights and sports, and they listen to uh, oral history that we have with Mary de Saussure Sobers, who was, she was young. I think she was around, um, maybe 10 years old, grew up in Bed-Stuy. She was African-American in 1945, but the Neighborhood Police Athletic League was holding a race, and all the other girls running were white. She didn't intend to go. She loved running. She and her sister were sent out to get some milk, and they happened upon it. They go into the race. They, they're like, we like to run. The guy said, okay, come on in. She was, you know, her oral history um, interview, and the kids just love this interview. Everybody does because it's, she remembers all of the kind of textural details of it. She's wearing a long dress. She had on galoshes. She had on under the galoshes. She had on Cuban heels. So the odds are stacked against this young lady that she's going to win this race, and yet she does. And then the people organizing the race, you know, are... um, in a hullabaloo, oh, we can't give her the gold medal. They give her the silver medal, flat out, you know, racism. And what she does in the oral history is talk us through how that incredibly, and that injustice that she lived through motivated her and her sister to form a running group for other girls of color called Trailblazers. And so then you can see the, some of the photographs of the running races as you progress forward from 1945 in the, into the rest of the 40s and early 50s, and you see more girls of color running. And so the students on our group looked at that, and they, you know, they only had about 15 minutes with us, but they said, oh, you know, I think, I think Mary's goal was, you know, she was right to have that goal, and she really succeeded because clearly she brought in other student, other young girls of color to run with her. And, you know, that was one of those moments where the students were able to analyze a set of documents and oral histories, put them in dialogue with each other, construct a narrative, be infused by their own sense of what would I have done as a kid losing a race like that or winning a race but not getting the gold, and then put that all together to be able to make an argument about the past. You know, I think that's really important because, as you said, Part of the history, I mean, part of doing history is to be transparent about our biases, about our own situation within the context of what we're looking at. But the the, the balance to that, right, is a kind of rigor with which we engage the primary sources. So, you know, what kind of things do you tell students Um, What kind of guidance do you give students when um, you're presenting them with, you know, primary sources, whether they oral histories or photographs or text or or what have you? Yeah, we try to, you know, this is pretty sort of what I've been saying that we're trying to do, which is model a more authentic historian process early on for kids. So at an age appropriate level. We don't tell kids always ask the same set of questions for every document, right? You have a reason for choosing this document or this source to be looking at. So ask those kinds of questions and really use it as a let your curiosity drive instead of kind of going through these worksheet type um, examples of who, what, where, when, why, how. So, for instance, if you're listening to an oral history with a woman who was welding at the Brooklyn Navy Yard in the 1940s, you're going to be looking for, well, how did it feel to um, wear pants for the first time on, on your work site? How did it, what kinds of conversations did you have with other women? What kind of, um, we knew it was an interracial dynamic. What, what was that like? Tell us about that. We're not going to be looking to that source to tell us when did the USS Arizona get built and how many rivets are in it, you know? So that's the type of thing that is a little harder to teach kids because it's special to each project. It's special to each um, source, but that's what we're trying to go for. I wonder if we can wrap up by just actually, you know, something that we don't always, that we maybe assume, but we don't always say why this matters, why it matters to all of us that um, that a generation of students who won't necessarily become historians or history teachers know how to do history. I think it's history requires a lot of imagination, actually. And I think you know, my two senses that there's a lot of imagination lacking from our world right now. And for the next generation to come up really dealing with and interpreting and re-looking at their past and maybe asking for more stories and more people, I think will give them more power to imagine and envision a more equitable and better future. 
And we're all on the hook to understand how we got to where we are. That's just the fact. And I think it's by, sometimes it's by looking at case studies from the past where you can really see all the sides and dig in and ask some what ifs that you build some intellectual muscle, maybe some emotional muscle too, to be addressing hard problems today. I feel like that emotional muscle is so important. We talked about this on the last episode mm-hmm. when we talked about the about the theater fire. Um, to be able to put faces and experiences to these large phenomena of the past, I think, is invaluable to young people, and it like sort of makes again takes it back to the, to their to looking at the world through new eyes. It sort mm-hmm. of to think about themselves and the positions of the people in history, and it seems. That if there there's many things that are missing from the nature of political discourse today, like a, a critical understanding of sources, and these are all mm-hmm. things that we address. But I also think that there's like a critical grasp of human empathy yeah, <laughs> that history yeah. can actually really teach you. It's why doing history this way is so important. And this way meaning connecting people having people understand they're part of a thread. They're not existing in isolation. The problems that we're witnessing or the mm. the solutions that are for these problems don't exist in isolation. This is part of a, a collaborative process of being, mm-hmm. right, in a society. And I think doing history this way, where it situates people in that continuum, where it gives them a sense of power to articulate their experiences and connect it in really important ways to the past. And I think the whole thing of empathy is about a more open kind of engagement. And I think there's an important lesson there to just be open and let it speak, right? There's a, I mean, this is maybe it's the like oral history. It's like deep listening, listening. Yeah, in the archives. Yeah, right? it's right. like, yeah. It's, and we'll get into this in the oral history section, and maybe it's because, you know, that's always on my mind about what does it mean to listen, right? And we think of listening in terms of sound, but the the principle of just being open, of trying to find these connections and in, in listening for silence, right, listening for what isn't there, mm-hmm. um, reading for what isn't spoken or what isn't stated, um, it's such an important way to do history. Yeah. And those are life skills to not come to every conversation with an agenda, but to be open, you know, to hearing what, well, what is this? Let me, let me come and, and really be open to what's happening in front of me. It seems like ideally we want our students to come to and leave Brooklyn Historical Society thinking of themselves not only as um, historians, but also as historical um, actors themselves, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. as active participants in a citizenry. Love this podcast? Then head over to Apple Podcasts and search for Flatbush and Maine to subscribe, rate, and review us. This increases our rankings and makes it easier for interested listeners like you to find us. As we discussed with Emily, we also look to model and empower people to do history in mediums that aren't traditionally educational settings. On this podcast, for example, we have a great group of listeners that are teachers, and we love hearing about how Flatbush in Maine is used in the classroom around the country. But we also have a lot of listeners who listen in different capacities for entertainment, for good storytelling, for interactive experiences. And another place where we seek to model the practices of history is in our exhibitions. This January, BHS is opening a major exhibition about the history of Brooklyn's waterfront at our new Dumbo Gallery space. While the topic of the exhibition is the history of the borough's coastline, the subtext throughout so much of this exhibition is about analyzing primary sources. Now, I am very fortunate, and our listeners are very fortunate, that our co-host of Flatbush in Maine is the curator of this exhibition. And so we get to sit and pick her brain. um, And get a preview. And get a preview of how she conceived of this exhibition as a tool for empowering its visitors to do history. 
Yeah, one of the things that I think really stuck out to me when talking to Emily is what a different experience she can have with students over the course of a semester versus um, just like a one-off visit. And then the challenge of the museum curator is um, even more even more stark than that, mm-hmm. which is that I'm never there um, right. when a visitor comes to a gallery. And so anything iterative or conversational or pedagogical that I want to imbue into an exhibition has to be done through some other means, through text, through the way that we design the exhibition. Because the last thing you want is for an exhibition to feel like a lecture. You want it to feel like a conversation and a discovery. Tell us how you did that. I, I imagine how daunting that is because you also, you can't control how much time people spend in a particular yeah, part true. of the exhibition, right? And so... How do you do this given these kind of minimizing tendencies of an exhibition? Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest challenges is that, you know, we love to talk about archives here and archives, you know, I'm a historian are my first love, but there's a reason why curators often lean towards artifacts versus archives because they're more visually interesting, they're three-dimensional, they're tactile, and um, there can be something really intimidating, I think, about text, including handwritten text. And of course, handwritten text is what we're talking about for much of the 19th century and earlier. So it's a, a fun and a unique challenge for me to think about how to, I mean, to, to bring a document to life. Here we do it on the podcast verbally, but how can you do it visually or by creating an experience? One of the thing, one of the places that we did this in the exhibition is in a section called an unfree waterfront, where we look at three documents and through those three documents, the story of three individuals who were enslaved at some point in their life along the waterfront. And the very premise of that models the practice of a social historian, which is that this is how we find enslaved people through financial documents, through things that were kept for another reason than for recording our lives, but through which we are able to sort of bring their very existence um, back to people's consciousness. I'm intrigued by the title. The unfree waterfront. Why? Why the unfree waterfront? Well, I think one of the things that we we really wanted to get across was that the experience of freedom or unfreedom wasn't a black and white one; that it was a process um, and it was a struggle, and um, one in which the person who was enslaved engaged in actively. Um, so, actually, it's a great question because we first. Um, we for a long time we had it been entitling this area enslaved workers, um, but we ended up getting rid of the word enslaved because it felt reductive to the experience of the three people, um, Frank, Samuel, and Bet, who we profiled. So I wanted to get at something where there was a sense of negotiation in the process of moving from freedom from unfreedom to freedom and not all of them not 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 all of frank bet and samuel the three people that we featured not all of them actually were able to get there yeah i really like it that term that conceptual framework really resonates with me because it establishes that there's this gray area between slavery and freedom or especially what people in brooklyn right? and yeah and yeah, especially so, along the waterfront yeah that one might not be a slave, but might still be unfree. Exactly. So I really like that. So you mentioned three people. Do you have a, an example that we can look at with sure, one of these people? Sure. Well, actually, and it's interesting because usually when you think about profiling people in an exhibition, you start with the person and then you think about what you're going to feature. And here we started with the documents in order to find the person. Mm. And I think that's inherent to the way that we approached bringing um, these documents to life. So um, I have to give a big shout out to my research team, especially Katie Lasdow and Sean Griffin, who did a lot of legwork on putting these people's stories and profiles together. But, you know, we wanted to feature unfree people. You start with financial documents. Mm. And so we looked at a lot of slave bills of sale, and we looked at a lot of account books, inventories, and this one particular inventory struck us as evocative and heartbreaking. So let's get into it. Yeah, so we're looking at an account book of 
a public auction that took place in 1798. And basically the auction was to sell off hundreds of goods from the estate of a very rich but um, very indebted man named John Cohen-Hohen. He lived along the waterfront near Wallabout Bay, which is where the Brooklyn Navy Yard is um, today. And he racked up a series of debts, um, possibly gambling debts, that necessitated the sale of his basically his entire estate so that his creditors could be satisfied. And so here we are as here looking through this list of mm-hmm. many, many pages of goods, household goods, furniture, things like um, bales of flour, teaspoons, tea kettles. And then, of course, when we get to page three, a list of six humans. Right. So this is this is like a ledger, right? It says mm-hmm. account sales of, of the, the real and personal estate. See, this is this is a challenge <laughs> we were talking about. Like That's this right. text is not That's if right. you're not used to reading this kind That's of cursive, right. it's hard. Uh, so the account sales of the real and personal estate of Mr. John Cohen Hohen sold at public auction by order of the trustees for all the creditors of the said John the Cohen. The said John Cohen Hohen. Okay. So he had no choice here. Uh, and the date is Wednesday, April 18th, 1798. But the fact you raised such an important point, which is that we can't expect everyone to read this. And in fact, like in the in the research about museums, especially history museums, we can assume that like five to 10 percent of people will read this text. Mm-hmm, so here's mm-hmm. what we can't do. We can't just slap this book out right. and assume that anybody will be drawn to it in any way even if the stories inside it are fascinating we have to understand that there are a set of expectations that museum visitors have and being forced to piece through difficult handwriting is not a priority for the majority of people coming through so this was immediately something that we knew that we had to interpret for people we Mm -hmm. had to create a Mm -hmm. device Mm -hmm. for people so what we actually ended up doing was we created a new book and we call it Beth's book And instead of having this be reproduced just as is, we've essentially created almost a storybook about it, where on the right side of the page, you have the original page. And then on the left side of the page, you have interpretation, along with highlights and arrows and boxes to call out the particular text that we want people to read. So Zaheer, if you looked at this, you might not have any desire to read every word. But if I showed you which word to read, you might be more likely to want to give that a shot to tackle a puzzle right. if it feels more accessible to you than having to unlock right. the whole page. Well, just the fact that you have already kind of decenter John Cohen Hohen from this story by calling it Bet's book. I mean, I'm already intrigued by how is this Beth's book? Like, how is this Beth's story, right? That's right. That's right. It's like we're almost like retraining the eye to see something that's seemingly small inside it and actually give it voice and bring it to the forefront of, of what we're looking at. So let's look at page three together because that's where that cent- that new center of gravity lies. So here, I'll model for you what we do for our museum visitors. And I want you to look at the last um six lines right. on the page. Can you can you read for us? Yes. Uh, it says Negro boy Neem, Negro man Harry, Negro woman Bet, Negro boy Prince, old Negro man Harry. And that's it. And that's it. So we've got a list of here we have five right. African American people who were part of the estate who were owned by John Cohen Hohen. You know, this already has grabbed my attention. This listing is alongside items. That's right. Right? A stove, kettle, wheels, a table, barrels. A barrels. Cloth. And so Already before we even start getting into the story, there is this listing of people uh, in the same column as items. It's jarring. And you're a historian, so you immediately notice that. But it's our responsibility in the museum setting to push people directly to make that comparison, to notice that among the tablespoons and the cooking, uh, the you know, the cooking utensils, right in there, s- snug in between them, there is a list of people. And then you move on again to another bale of flour, mm. right? Mm-hmm. I think another thing that you might notice as a historian, but not everybody else might, is that there's a lot of other data here. Yeah. We can see 
the purchasers' names. Mm -hmm. We can mm -hmm. see how much things are sold for. So we can actually make a comparison yes. between how much these people were valued at monetarily amongst themselves and then right. also in comparison to the right. other goods. Right. So what do you notice about our what about our, our family here? So we can think about this as a yes. family, certainly as a unit, and the designation of boy versus man old versus not named as old we can kind of assume some things about the age um, but the other thing is that there is a gross discrepancy on, on the sale prices right. of these people i mean it sounds um, ridiculous to say sale prices of these people but it is exactly what it is the most expensive quote unquote sales were for the two boys yep. and the man yep. right it looks like Neen, who was one of the boys, went for like, is that 50, yep, 50, 50, 50 pounds. pounds? Harry went for 45 mm -hmm. pounds. And Prince, the other boy, went for 65 pounds. That's right. Old man Harry is two pounds. And think about that. And 65 yeah, pounds yeah, to two pounds. Yeah. Yeah. And Bet is five shillings five shillings not even not right. even a pound right so how do you provoke the visitor to really extract a story out of this this is i think the this is the crux of the story right and this is the this is actually the tragedy of the story and one of the things that we wanted visitors to do with this is not look at this as a sin of the past mm -hmm. but actually like a universal complicity your brain has to jump to a series of logical places to make assessments about why people cost what they cost. The In this case, we have young men costing more than mm -hmm. old men, mm -hmm. costing more than old women, mm -hmm. because the essential value of these human beings was for the extracted labor that they provided. Yeah. And the younger they were, the more hard labor they were able to provide, right? Whereas Bet, who is valued almost worthless, right? Mm -hmm. Has no monetary value at this point and it sells for, for five shillings. I mean, the horror behind that is something that we really wanted people to literally face. And so when I say that, uh, let me describe for you the, the sort of the milieu in which you're looking at this in the exhibition. We have laid this book out, Beth's book, um, where you're sitting at a desk. And actually, in front of you, you're facing a life-size recreation of an image of an African-American scrub woman. And so this is not Bet because we have no picture of Bet, but this is a woman who is me meant to represent what Bet's life was like. And so as you ponder <laughs> the inhumanity behind the financial assessment here, you're actually looking Bet face-to-face. And I think that gets back to the theme of empathy and imagination that we talked yeah. about um, with Emily. There is like there is there is new possibilities in a museum setting to have an experience of empathy that is multisensory um, that can bring together many different kinds of collections to create kind of a an like an in almost an immersive experience um, of considering the life of a person in the past. Yeah, no, I think that's such an important. Um the the ways that you've described the exhibition giving personhood to bet first by naming the book after her the book of bet by having this image of a woman because looking at this and even trying to explain it you are forced as you said to get into the framework of valuing people in yes. a certain way this is the only way you can understand the logic right. but in understanding the logic you are kind of participating in that framework. Right. And the, the only thing that will prevent you from kind of accepting this is by being jarred with the image of a person to remind us that we are trying to make sense of the sale of a person. Yeah, and I think we wanted to make no bones about what our perspective and our goal was here. We had a very specific objective, and the objective was to tell the story from the perspective of Bet. Mm -hmm. You could tell the story from many different perspectives. Who knows what John Cohen Hohen's own story was? And I'm sure it's it's fascinating and important, but that's not my priority. Um, my priority was to to give face and to give depth to the experiences of countless African-American women who struggled in slavery and, and likely in the case of Bet died enslaved. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, I mean, I think, 
I hope that visitors get this, but to also question what it means to be a family. Because I think it, I think what, what I thank the creditors for is that they listed these five people next to each other yeah. in the book. Yeah. Because when you look at it, we're making inferences here, but you can see the, the, the contours of a three-generation family. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Likely, Bet and old man Harry were of the same age or the same generation. Mm-hmm, Perhaps mm-hmm. they were married. Yeah. Um, perha- and we make that assumption because of the, um, the, the value. Amount, the value. Right? Yeah. The amount of money that is, that mm-hmm. is, that is um, put on them. And then perhaps the man Harry, who's not described as old man, who's just man Harry, um, who sells for 45 pounds, perhaps he is their child. Mm-hmm. Um, but he is certainly a next generation below them. And then you have the young people who are listed as boy Mm -hmm. who heartbreakingly go for the most amount of money right and so whether or not these people were related by blood which they may well have but we'll never know they certainly needed to cobble together a support system that would have made them family in practice and you know you mentioned family and um, if you look at the list of purchasers they're each purchased by a different purchaser that's right so the this family as we see it this unit um, on of April people, 18th. yeah, who who whether or not they were blood relatives had become a kinship unit because they had been in this household, right. right? On this date, they were separated from each other. I mean, how how do you prompt the user to realize that this is a family being split up or that this is happening? Oh, that's like such a good question to hear, and it's actually made more complicated by the fact that there was some debate among my team about how um, sort of detached or emotional we should be in our didactic text helping people walk through this. We had a really interesting debate because I would say traditionally historians would take a very detached Mm -hmm. approach to this, Mm -hmm. but that was in a lot of ways counter to what I wanted to to do with this. So I think that there are some historians who might look at the text that accompanies this and maybe be like, ooh, I don't know if I would use that particular kind of language, the language of tragedy, the language of families breaking apart. But we did that very purposefully um, because of that real of that paradox within this which is that you don't have a face you don't have details of their life um so it's very easy to reduce this human being to a name on a page but we needed to imbue the humanity in them so i i actually um the exhibition hasn't opened yet so i don't know if this is going to yeah. be successful and i'm yeah. very very curious to see the way that people react to well, it you know and i think we talked about this in the first segment the need to be transparent about where you're coming from and I, I think I, I, too, am unconvinced when historians kind of say this kind of flat detachment because you're dealing with an uneven power of representation right. here That's between exactly right. Bet and, you know, John Cohen Hohen and her purchasers or their purchasers. Right. To me, that this is a question that every historian answers in their own way. But the question is, how do you make up? for this unevenness in the power of representation, this disparity, right? And yes, sometimes it comes off as though the historian is becoming an advocate for the lesser represented. And, you know, I personally... Don't have any I'm shame in that. I, 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 I feel strongly that we had to own it, that we had a responsibility to this person to own that. And it's not just for the sake of like an, an ethical or moral obligation to her, because it actually, in my in my mind, is modeling a partic- like a particular kind of analysis that can tell you more about the experience of these people on this day on the ground. And there's something else actually in this book, if you look on the last page, that I mean, to me really that to me really hammers this home. So if we look at this book as a whole, mm-hmm. on the very last page you can see a series of sums as the person who was likely the auctioneer was doing like a quick add up of things. And then you also see a hurried final exchange of one last unnamed Negro boy for $70, $75 mm-hmm. to John Lott. And I don't know what it is about this particular last exchange. Did it happen last minute? Um, were they unable to find a seller for him? Was there a quick exchange where he was actually going to go with one of his brothers, but actually was instead sold to John Lott? But there's something that is so 
that brought me back to the day, the chaotic day that this must have happened, um, where these six people woke up and didn't know where they would be. And then the next day they were owned by somebody else that made it really real to me. And I wanted, it felt incredibly important to keep this otherwise sort of innocuous page of sums with the words Negro boy in here in there so that people could perhaps like go back to that moment themselves. In our first segment, our guest Emily Potter and Jai described so beautifully one particular oral history from our collection and the impact that it has had on students visiting Brooklyn Historical Society. We couldn't let this episode wrap without allowing you to listen to that evocative clip. Before we play the clip, just a little bit about Mary DeSaussure Sobers, a track runner from the Brooklyn neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant. She became the first African-American female to run in a sanctioned track meet when she participated in the Olympic Carnival sponsored by the New York City Department of Parks in 1945. In this clip, she tells the story of her first track meet where she experienced both sexism and racism. It was a Saturday morning when we wake up my mother usually had a cold stove in the kitchen, and she needed some oil, kerosene oil for the little oil burner. It was like a damp day. It was sort of like the rain, you know, sidewalks were sort of damp, wet. So I didn't want nobody to see me. I didn't have no shoes to go to Martha, and I wanted to go. So I went in my big sister's closet, sneaked out a green pair of Cuban heel shoes. Those little shoes with a heel about that big. And I went and got a pair of galoshes that my mother used to put over her shoes when it was raining. And I didn't want none of my friends to see me with these green shoes in February. Okay? Put <laughs> the galoshes on. <laughs> I had this jacket on and this long dress that my mother got from the thrift shop. It was beige and green. And as we went down the block, she said, look, look, I saw these buses and children getting out going. Some wonder what's up. So we, we, we had to go. So let's hurry up. And we ran. I'm right behind her, going to the store. When we got up on the corner, we couldn't see for the buses and the children. So I said, something's happening at the laundry like that. I said, let's go. And she was running right behind me. When I got to the door, and all of a sudden, I see a face up there in the door. Then he opens it, and he says, what's the matter? I said, where's all the kids? He said, in here. I said, what's going on? They gonna race each other. Run? He says, yeah. And he opened the door wide, and he shoved us in. Like, uh, nobody else is coming up here, and he threw us in. <laughs> and when I got in there, I said, oh, please, please let me run. I know I can run. And he takes one look, and he looks at my feet. And he saw the galoshes. And then he looked at the dress. It was long, it was down here. Had a few little more holes in it. And he says, like that. I said, just like this. I'm always running like this. We run against the wind, too, when it's windy. We try, but it pushes us back. And he was laughing. Mm-hmm. Well, he comes back, grabs me up, took me over to the scale, put 40-yard dash, you're going to run. And I got on the line. He says, hurry up, little girl. Get your, give your sister your coat and your jacket or whatever. And he says, you come right here by me, and I'll tell you when. Put me in the very first heat. Well, when I got there, he said, well, I'm going to say two, three things. On your mark, get set, and go. And he said, look, girl, you run like hell. That's what he said. You run like no. When I got out there, Martha hadn't yet got herself settled. She went upstairs. Listen to this. The balcony, she said, well, you couldn't see. It was all the family of the children. She said the men were more, this one man in there was so rude. He said, hey, he said, do I see a black girl down there? Where that come from? Like that to Martha, Martha. He didn't say it to her. He's saying it to the men, and they all got up and looked. So then Martha said she heard the yelling, and she said, oh, my God. And she ran. She took the can with her and ran down where you could look over another balcony in the army. She said, oh. And then she said, all I could see was your little dress. They were holding a sizzle cord for a rope, and it burned me right there. He came and grabbed me. He said, you know you want? He said, but you got a little thing here from the rope. I said, he said, I'll tell the girls to ease up. You're too short. I was short. And um, less than 4'11 when I ran that race. So he said, oh, my God. He said, you can run. Then the semifinals. And he goes, he grabs me again, come up. And I was right. He said, go in the first heat of the semis, he said, now, anybody. He says that wins uh, the semis, he says, are going to come in first, is going to be picked to run the finals. 
And that girl, those three girls, will go to Madison Square Garden to represent Brooklyn. Now he said, little girl, you know you gotta run. These girls are getting tougher and tougher. I got out there and when he said go, all I know I, <laughs> that's all I remember. <laughs> and when I got down there, the rope got me under the net. I said, oh, and he came over, he said, again, you got it, you're too short. And she said, well, I don't believe this. He said, you won your trial, you won your semifinal, and now you're ready for the finals. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, now this will determine if you get, he said, any of the other places, you're going to go to Madison Square Garden. When the final came, the whole place was quiet. <laughs> when I got on the line, and he said, take the mark, it's set, I was gone. When I look, I had another mark up my nose, and he said, Oh, shorty, he said that. You got another mark, but you won. He put me right there in first place. Betty second, and the other girl third. And he said, you're going to have parents who have to fill out a lot of paperwork and everything. But he was taking too long at the table. And I figured that he must have been a little nervous. You know, because that was a rough crowd there. So he kept doing like this. And looking at the medal and, and doing this and doing that. But I didn't know why he was doing all that. I waited for my medal. So he finally came over and he had them all closed in a the box. There was mine, there was the other girl, and there was the other girl. And then he said, don't forget, you have to give me this paperwork and you got to get the proper clothes. When I opened it, it was the silver medal. Even though you had come in first. I was first. And I was like this. Look, you know, I couldn't move because I saw it and I knew I was first. And everybody there knew I was first. But you didn't get the gold medal. Because I didn't understand that it was all due to racism. And I was a lock. In other words, the two men had first thought because I was dressed that I couldn't run like that. You see? And all the other girls were beautifully dressed because it was a track meet that they knew about. I, I just stumbled on the thing. I came in and I'm sure God pushed me in the door because I said, look, the way I had on that outfit and my sister, we, we didn't look like we were ready for a track meet. I'm sure they didn't expect me to do anything because they put me in the first seat. They expect me to fall down because they were Cuban shoes in those galoshes. So he was probably, this is the way I feel in my own heart, saving himself because he let me in there. And he didn't know I was going to win. Think about it, he didn't know I was going to win because that thing was set up for, for this girl, Betty. Mm -hmm. And she would have won because she was second behind me. She would have won. Mm -hmm. So. He figures it's his fault because he let me in. And I can imagine they were saying some tough things to him, you know. So I, we, we shoved that off. We went on and we made it. We made it. Mm -hmm. We made it because people were decent and there were always people around who would see the good in you. So I want to tell the kids, when you are young, and in those days, the parents taught that you do not sass or say anything smart to an adult. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to worry about that. They knew that you were raised that way. Mm -hmm. And whatever they did goes. You don't, you don't challenge. You can't lay a challenge. Mm -hmm. So I said it was racism 101. That's what it was. Not only for color, I want you to know, but for women. They did not want women in sports. They didn't want them there. They thought a woman in our day was to go to school, get an education, teach your kids, get a nice husband, and make children. That's how it was. For this episode's endorsements, we asked our guest from our first segment to stick around um, and tell us what's going on in the education department this upcoming year. Emily, tell us what you're endorsing. We are hosting an NEH Summer Institute this summer here at BHS in partnership with the Museum of the City of New York, all about abolition and suffrage. How these two social movements competed, collided, cooperated, and generally interacted. It's our second time hosting this institute. The lead scholar is Deborah Gray White, who's fantastic. And any teacher from around the country is eligible to apply as our teachers in training. So apply by March 1st. You can find out more at our website on the education tab under teachers. Thanks, Emily. And I have to say, the last time we did this amazing NEH Summer Institute, the teachers were just so psyched. Um, it was an amazing set of programming, so people should definitely apply. 
It was the highlight of my year. I mean, I'm, I'm really true, truly believe that. Also, I believe Sahir's going to be <laughs> teaching a section of it, so yes. don't miss. We're going to do history. That's right. Yay. Sahir, what are you excited about this month? Well, there's. let me just say that I want to invite our listeners to check out our full calendar of programs. And, of course, we highlight on a monthly basis, but make your plans to be at BHS very frequently this this winter and spring. The event that I think is is very exciting to me is on Tuesday, January 16th at 6.30, we'll be having a discussion on 45 years after Roe versus Wade. Roe versus Wade was decided on January 22nd, 1973, so it's 45 years ago. If anyone's paying attention to dates, last year, January 21, was the Women's March. And if you've been paying attention to the news, we've been having all of these conversations about women and their rights to their bodies. And so this is a really important conversation that will be taking place, and we have a superstar lineup Elise Hogue, the president of NARAL, uh, Pro-Choice America, Rebecca Tracer, writer-at-large for New York Magazine, and Katha Pollitt, author of Pro-Reclaiming Abortion Rights. And they will discuss the legacy and future of this landmark case on the occasion of its 45th anniversary. Again, that's Tuesday, January 16th at 6.30 p.m. It is $10 for non-members, $5 for members. But as we've always been saying, we hope by now you have your membership. And I actually think that members maybe get advanced. They can sign up in advance for that one because that one's going to sell out like hotcakes. That's right. Members will receive early access to this event. So now's your chance, listeners. Now's your chance. Sign up. Yeah, this is the the um, programming roster for this spring is like a set of superstars. It's pretty great. I'm pretty excited about January because an exhibition that I've been working on for the better part of three years is opening on January 20th of this month. And so I hope you'll all come out to our satellite gallery, Brooklyn Historical Society Dumbo, to see Waterfront, which covers about 20,000 epic years of the history of our borough's waterfront. Um, We have some great programming to go along with the exhibition, and on the 23rd of January, which is a Tuesday, back up at our Brooklyn Heights location, a BHS and Underwater New York will be co-presenting a really wonderful panel called Current Bodies, Art and Action on the Waterfront with a series of really interdisciplinary artists who address the history and future of the waterfront. So this includes Chester Higgins, Barry Rosenthal, Nancy Nowacek, Francis Estrada, Cynthia Manick, and Wo Chan. And they will all have a really wonderful conversation where they talk about the waterfront as a site of continuity and a threshold for political, social, and environmental change. Tickets are $5, free for members. Again, that's Tuesday, January 23rd. Doors open at 6, and the event is at 6.30. We'll link to all these on our show notes. And with this episode of Flatbush in Maine, we've made Brooklyn history. Thanks to our guest, Emily Potter and Jai. You can learn more about Flatbush in Maine at brooklynhistory.org slash flatbush maine. There you'll find more details from each episode, pictures of documents and artifacts, and clips and info on oral histories. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and rate us on Apple Podcasts or any other podcast platform you use. Our show music is by Joe Schloss. Find out more about him at josephschloss.com. Tune in each month for lots more Brooklyn history. From Brooklyn Historical Society, we are your hosts, Zahir Ali and Julie Golia. 